Hello and welcome to the One Stop English podcast for September 2017. Each month we bring together teachers, editors and experts to discuss what's going on in the world of ELT. I'm your host, Sam Wadsworth, former teacher and current editor here at Macmillan. Joining me this month are Patrick Curry, Delta Qualified Teacher and Digital Training Executive. Hi, Sam. Beth Williams, former teacher and editor of numerous general English and secondary titles. Hello. And Erin Vickerman, Senior Teacher at the Language Gallery London. Hi, everyone. This month we'll be discussing the role of world Englishes in the classroom, grammar bugbears and meta-language. We also have an interview with Sue Kay, teacher, teacher trainer, co-author of the Inside Out series and co-founder of ELT Teacher to Writer. Okay, so Erin, I understand that you are about to embark on a Delta. Yes, I am. I'm going to do my Delta at International House and I'm doing it full time. So I'm going, going for it. Definitely. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're going to stop work and uh, do it full time. Stop work, do it full time. Intense. Yes. Excellent decision. I can uh, highly recommend that. And good luck. Thank you very mm. much. I think I might need it. Brilliant. <laughs> All right, let's get started. Patrick, you're going to kick things off this month with a discussion about world Englishes. Yeah, that's right. So thanks, Sam. World English uh, Englishes refers to a variety of English spoken around the world, as you'd expect. Uh, in ELT classes, though, two main versions of English are traditionally taught, which are British English and American English. And from our perspective as publishers, uh, this is what the vast majority of course books are based on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there aren't, and nor have there always been, just two versions of English. There's hundreds around the world, loads and loads of native dialects. Not just British or American English, but other English-speaking countries. Yeah, such Irish as... English. Yeah, okay. Australian English. Yep. yep. Presumably things like Scottish English as well. Yeah, absolutely. South Cornish. African. Corn- yeah, well, Welsh English as well. Welsh, yep. Zimbabwe, yeah. And then there's also other Englishes which have been culturally adapted by non-native speakers, so kind of a mixture of English and another language. So Singlish is one, isn't it? Singaporean English. Yes, mm-hmm. English is one. Any others? Spanglish. Yep, Spanglish is one. <laughs> isn't so that a film a, as well? I think it might be a film <laughs> yeah. as well, yeah. Um, there's Conglish. What's Conglish? Korean English. Okay, of course. Mm. There's Franglaise. What's yeah. that? French and Anglaise. <laughs> uh, Chinglish. Right. Chinese yeah, English. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, so what I want to talk about today is how teachers should approach teaching world Englishes because by 2020, so not long from now, native speakers will only make up 15% of the estimated 2 billion people who will be using and learning the language. So there's a good argument to be made that lots of world English will become more prominent and its usage will supplant standard English in many places. So before we really get into the discussion, I just want to have a little bit of fun and give you some examples of words from the aforementioned, sorry, words from the aforementioned dialects. So in, in Indian English, there's a thing called a, a carcade. Any ideas what that Carcade. Drive through arcade. That's a <laughs> brilliant concept. I hope it is that. Any other guesses for carcade? Is it like a lemonade that you drink in your car? Um, I wish it were, but unfortunately it's not not that interesting, actually. It's a a kind of hybrid blended noun of kind of cavalcade and motorcade. Right. Right, so that's what Indians used to describe that when you've got, like, a president coming to town and there's his carcade. A carcade, okay. Okay, Okay. Okay. that's good. Yeah, Yeah. Um, Jamaican English has a a word, batchmate. Batchmate. Yeah. I'm very glad you didn't attempt any kind of accent there as well. Um, (laughs) Batchmate. I don't know. What does the batchmate mean? Um, it's actually a classmate or a member of the same graduation group. Okay, that your makes sense, ba- right? Your batchmate. Okay, the batch you're in, yeah. Yep. Philippine English has uh, an adjective which is presidentiable. 
Is it like presidential? Is it just a different version of presidential? Able to be a president? Yeah, basically. Yeah. They've just changed the suffix. Uh, okay, and then some non-native dialects. Conglish. What's a handphone? Handphone? Mm-hmm. Cell phone. Yeah. Got to be. But if you go, yeah, exactly. But if you go mm. to Korea, everyone refers to it as a handphone. No one, no one okay, says cell phone. No one says mobile phone. Mm. Say so handphone. Right. Um, and then some people like in their free time to go eye shopping. Internet eye shopping. shopping. No. For glasses? Glasses shopping? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually window shopping. Window shopping. Just shopping with your eyes. Oh, I, like yeah, I think cool. I actually prefer that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, other languages like uh, Franglais, you mentioned, has loaned words from English. For example, le footing. Le footing. Oh, is that running? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes, okay. Just moving fast with your feet. Mm-hmm. And le parking. Car park. Yeah. yeah. Weirdly, mm. but wouldn't use that way. Anyway, how does this all apply to teaching? What we're going to do today is look at how much teachers should focus on uh, the English of the local area where they're teaching. Okay, so that's a good question, isn't it? Any ideas? Do you think we should be trying to teach this? Should we be looking at the kind of local parts of dialect or parts of grammar or parts of vocabulary and teaching them? Erin, any ideas? Um, I think that it depends if the students that you're teaching are wanting to kind of integrate into mm. the place that you are living in and teaching in. Mm. Um, but again, I think you have to wait for them to come to you with it. If they're noticing it, then it's meaningful and then they want to know about it. But if you're presenting it out of context it might not be worth their focus. Mm. Right, and definitely what you said. I mean, we we both, um, you know, spoilers here, um, Erin and I used to work together in the same school in London. And obviously a lot of the people there actually don't have the intention to stay and work and live or study in London necessarily. So teaching them kind of aspects of, of local kind of London dialects might not be that useful, broadly speaking. It might be interesting, but it might not be that mm. useful um, all in. Any other ideas? Uh, one idea you could do, I guess, with, with grammar is uh, just simplify things a lot. Um, so take out the more difficult parts. And rather than doing something like question tags, if something can be easier, under, easier understood, like just using write instead, mm-hmm. uh, or accepting uh, alternatives for word orders, if people kind of got the adjectives in the wrong order. So maybe that's more interesting what you're saying, accepting, though. That's, that's different to me formally presenting this as something that they need to know or they should learn. But just accepting that actually in that area, especially if you are working not in London, but you're working in in Thailand or somewhere like that, and there's a common mistake Mm. that you know they're going to make, and you're just hammering into them, trying to get them to get this pronunciation right, but it's something that's really, really difficult for students of that particular area, maybe you could just be a bit more lenient. Maybe it's Mm. not about teaching that, but saying, actually, that's okay. Mm. Um, I understand what you're trying to say, and I think most people that you speak to in English are going to understand what you're trying to say, so... We'll look at Why other make a aspects. Big deal of it, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, could it be a, like an awareness raising of uh, alternate alternative pronunciation? For example, in that local area, they might pronounce something slightly differently using that, like a notoriously difficult sound like th. They just use an f or a v sound. So you decide, right, I'm going to incorporate that into my my syllabus, teaching that pronunciation because that's used here. Yeah, so you could teach that. What do you think, Erin? Would you do that? Is that something you consider doing if you're working abroad? Maybe. Um, I think definitely be aware of it. And teach them and show them how to be aware of it, but don't necessarily say this is what we're doing and we're doing it this way. I think, yeah, going back to what you said about leniency, um, I guess a lot of teachers, I think this is slowly changing, but a lot of teachers seem to be quite protective over English and certainly their English. Um, and I think that needs to kind of disappear a little bit because it, it actually distracts from real learning and it takes them into directions, the students that directions that are not that useful for them. So knowing what they need, what their motivations are and where they're going to learn or use their English. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, no, I agree. And also, I think as teachers, um, 
you know, it's important to teach things we feel comfortable comfortable with as well. So, I mean, going back to what you were saying about do we do we actually teach these variants of pronunciation? I mean, I wouldn't feel comfortable and it would certainly feel very inauthentic for me to teach in an accent that isn't my own or, or maybe not in an accent in an accent but in a you know a part of pronunciation that I don't use I'd feel right. yeah I'd feel really weird doing that yeah I wouldn't feel comfortable yeah um so I guess it is um what what you're saying Erin essentially is that if it if it impedes their communication their ability to understand or to communicate with other people then it should be something that you're teaching but if it doesn't then why make a big thing of it really it's, yeah. it's what they need I think definitely you've got to pick your battles. There's so much to learn. There's so many nuances to get. I think why start with something more complicated than what's necessary? Yeah, I think finally to, to remember that teachers need to accept that language does evolve um, constantly, in fact, so it's not really that surprising um, that English, when it's been adopted in other countries, changes in quite unusual and unpredictable ways. Um, just a little research I did. So when a language spreads, obviously it begins to fracture and Latin um, broke into lots of mutually distinct languages over 100 years. Do you know those languages? Spanish. Well, Italian. Yeah, yeah. Portuguese. Yeah. And the one that I loved, because um, I speak Italian, having lived in Italy for many years, um, Romanian as well. Mm, I yeah. remember first hearing some Romanian on the street and thinking I was suddenly mm. some kind of genius. Cause <laughs> I've never been to Romania or study, studied Romanian, mm. but understood a few words here and there. I think Latin also became French as well. And uh, the Arabic as well has a myriad of, myriad of dialects all connected through the written language of the Quran. So, mm. um, But yeah, what's happened to English may be its own thing. It's sort of mingling with loads of local languages and this might kind of start a new path towards a global tongue as well, which uh, might be known as Panglish. Panglish. Okay. Uh, anyway, what's important really from a classroom perspective, I think, is teachers remain aware of the evolution and just how it's going to affect their teaching context and apply it accordingly. Brilliant. All right. Thank you very much. OK, Beth, I understand you're going to boldly dive into the world of grammar bugbears. <laughs> yes, um, this is grammar peeves. So which grammar er errors should we teach and which can we be a bit more lenient with? Now, I have to say, admit here, I love this topic. I saw a recent post on Facebook and the quote was, my life is a constant battle between wanting to correct grammar and wanting to have friends. <laughs> <laughs> so who relates to that? I certainly did when I saw it. Yeah, I just go for no friends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's not why. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as we've already talked about, actually, um, you know, language is constantly changing and evolving. And what was perhaps considered an error some years ago is now accepted as correct in everyday speech. So, for example, if I ask the question, how are you? What would you reply? What would you reply, Aaron? Good. Sam, how are well, you? I'm, I'm fine, thanks. Patrick, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Okay, oh, nice. Three different answers. But yeah, and all three acceptable answers, I think, in, in everyday English. Now, to say I am good isn't actually grammatically wrong, but it means more like I am a good person, mm -hmm. not I'm mm. very well. Uh, but now it is so ubiquitous that it would seem something that would be strange to correct. I would even consider teaching that in a functional English lesson. For sure, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, I had a, a little look at some beginner and elementary course books and none of them taught it. They still teach how you, I'm fine, I'm well, which is interesting considering how it's now come into common language. So, to correct or not to correct. Now, obviously, it depends what you want out of your students, whether you're focusing on communication or accuracy. 
For example, if I had a low-level student with confidence issues who uses will for every future form, I might let that one go as meaning will have been conveyed, conveyed and my focus would be to get them to produce understandable language. But for example, an intermediate student who makes the same mistake, I'd probably be a bit more severe because really they're going to sound much better and more competent in English if they say something like, I'm meeting my sister after work, not I'll meet my sister after work. Even though both sentences are equally understandable, I think, you know, it depends actually what we're going for. That said, I do think that all grammar rules are not made equal. Staying on the future theme, do any of you correct the use of a going to, even when, strictly speaking, it should be present continuous? The yes. burning question? Yeah. Not really. You would? Mm, no. I, yeah, Erin, what were you going to say? Unless it, I mean, you might hear it and it'll sound really, really odd, um, but generally I wouldn't go for that, just let them carry on. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of native speakers probably get that one mixed up. So, and certainly from my own experience, working on course books, when you're trying to come up with satis a satisfactory grammar exercise, which distinguishes clearly between going to and present continuous, I mean, it's really difficult, I think. So yeah, some things you're going to correct more than others. Now, here's an interesting thing. If a native speaker said to you, I'm loving the new series of House of Cards on Netflix... You wouldn't think anything of it, I don't think. That's lower my opinion, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, that's getting towards my category of things I don't like, though, for sure. Yeah, Is I mean, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't crack down on it, but I would definitely shudder. But would you feel differently if it was a non-native <sighs> No, I just I'd don't be, like it full stop. I'd, I'd, I'd be kind of <laughs> even, yeah. even more outraged. Yeah, just, I, yeah. I'd be impressed that they'd pick that up and they were using it. Okay, yeah, if, no, if, that's a If their goal fair was point. to sound yeah. like a native speaker and it doesn't have to be, but yeah. if it was, it'd be very impressive. I, I mean, I'd find out who their teacher was and go and have a stern word. A stern word. Okay, yeah. But I think the thing is as well, they might say... I'm loving the new series of mm. whatever on Netflix and not realise that actually what they're saying is now fairly common, but it's actually grammatically incorrect. So, you know, would you correct it? I mean, in that case, I probably would because I'd want them to know, you know, I might give them a little talk on state or dynamic words, which I probably wouldn't do to a native speaker. I'm thinking you two probably would. Yeah, that's why we don't have friends. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all becoming clearer. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's interesting. As native speakers, uh, we manipulate change and mould language. And on the one hand, that's considered fine. Whereas for non-native speakers, we consider them perhaps mistakes, even though going back to what we've talked about, that also happens in, you know, and that's how world English is and mm. global English changes as well. So I think, you know, both natives and non-natives have a fair influence over, over language. Moving on to our own feelings about this, you've made some of your feelings clear already. Now, who wants to play? Who wants to be a grammar pedant? Okay. <laughs> I'd love to play that. I would love to play. Yeah. Okay. So for this, yeah. I think we'll forget about the kind of teaching aspect of it. And this is just more about your own personal feelings about different areas of grammar and grammar mistakes. Okay, so it's not, we wouldn't, we're not talking about whether we'd correct students or correct friends here. It's just, does it make you angry? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. yeah. How angry will, yeah, okay. does this make you? Okay. So, uh, number one, less and fewer. Not angry. Yeah, Use not, it incorrectly all the time. Yeah, so do I. All the time. I actually got corrected by my wife the other day saying that. Um, uh, and I said, this is just stupid. No, you know what I mean. Don't be stupid. Um, makes me 
What what are the scales here? One's calm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Five's apoplectic. Let's go one to ten. Ten being apoplectic. I mean, it makes me mildly furious. Up seven, maybe. Yeah. No, I'm with you, Patrick. Wow. I'm, I'm pushing an eight. I put it on one. Okay. No, yeah. I, and I correct people as well. Yeah. Sometimes ah. under my breath, sometimes to their face, depending. Um, okay, let's see what else we've got here. Um, using adjectives instead of adverbs. So you do get this quite a lot post-sports events. Can you give me an example? Uh, he played fantastic. Oh. That annoys me. Yeah, that would yeah. annoy me. That's yeah. getting to sort of six or seven, for sure. I yeah. Think, I think it's because I like the sound of adverbs as yeah. well. It's just yeah. fun to say. Yeah. They're lovely. Mm. I'm going to be consistent and stick around to seven for that as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm again uh, I'm again probably pushing an eight. What about the word literally? I literally exploded with anger. It's a difficult one. I definitely do that. I, I, mm. I definitely do that okay on occasion, but um I can understand why people get annoyed about it, for sure. I experienced that when I worked in retail for years at university and every morning we'd have a meeting and uh, the manager, who I'm sure won't be listening to this, so it's okay, said, Guys, the clothes are going to be literally flying off the shelves. <laughs> and every day I'd sit there and think, I don't know how much more I can take. So I'm literally going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, let's see, next one. I, when you mean me. So, for example, um, in the sentence or the question, can you forward that email to Claire and I? <laughs> We're getting to the more. Uh, yeah. Again, I think I'd probably make that mistake. Yeah, yeah. On, on occasion. Yeah. Um, so it'd be harsh to... I wish I knew how to not make that mistake, basically. Because if you take Claire out, can you forward that email to I? It's clearly a mistake. Mm-hmm. But adding True. that... I mean, it makes me angry, kind of any anger. Just, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Maybe this just is just about grammar. anger yeah. issues. It's not, just, it's not just grammar, you know, <laughs> yeah. just people... Speaking. Speaking, yeah, okay. (laughs) Okay, last one then. This is more a pronunciation one. Pronunciation of the or the. (laughs) Do we know Mm. the rule? Yes. We we should know the rule. Yes, good. So, before a vowel, the. Before a consonant, the. I don't mind. I don't think I'd notice. I think think I'd probably do it right, but I don't think I'd notice if somebody else did it wrong unless Mm. I was in class. I don't think I'd notice... Being from Yorkshire, I do it all the time. I say things like the internet, mm. like the internet. Yeah, mm. it just the doesn't sound right sometimes in my voice. So, yeah. I'm okay with it. You're okay, yeah. Patrick. Well, I mean, that didn't make me that angry, so probably. It's okay. Still right. <laughs> right. We found something you don't care about. I like, I like the Yorkshire accent. Okay. All right. Okay, and so just to round up then, because the Yorkshire accent. <clears throat> Indeed. <laughs> So let's see if um, Patrick's anger con- uh, continues when it comes to song lyrics. So I just as I was um, researching this, I thought about incorrect grammar in song ly- lyrics. And does that matter less, maybe? So, for example, I can't get no satisfaction. Any. Yeah, it'd be weird, though, if, you know, like... <laughs> I'd love to see you go to one of the concerts and just shout, uh, Mick, Mick, <laughs> I think you need any. <laughs> you mean any. <laughs> Um, what about I feel good, James Brown? Right. Well, I feel well. Yeah, yeah. I, feel, I feel. Well, interestingly, the Beatles did I feel fine, so you know they did do it correctly. Uh, but the one I liked the most um, was that fated American rapper slash uh, song producer Timberland, 
And he went right out there and just um, had a song, The Way I Are. Mm. I mean, that's bold, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one would say bold, others might say stupid. Um, I, I don't know, would, would you correct that? <laughs> what about the, what's that lyric? It's like, like, a, like a room without a roof, wherever song that is, happy. You know that? Little... I, I know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For, yeah. For, for room, yeah, rooms don't have roofs, they have ceilings. Oh, yeah, good point, yeah. Interesting. I hope okay. you've written that letter. I think, yeah, I think. I, mean, I hate that song strongly anyway. worded letter. I hate that several anyway. times a week. So yeah, I mean, I think from this, it, you know, a lot of these things come down to personal choice, really. And does it matter? You know, a lot of these times, um, not so much. I think unless it's really impeding communication, mm. and you know, depending on what you want from your students, I think we can let a lot of these things go. To be honest, but yeah, agreed. All right. Well, thank you very much. So, listeners, over to you. Should we be making an effort to teach aspects of local dialects? What are some of your personal grammar bugbears? Let us know at one stop podcast at springernature.com. Okay, next up, it's warmer of the month. Each month, we challenge our guest teacher to explain a fun, communicative activity in no more than five steps. So, Erin, what have you got for us? Okay, so my warmer today is called Five Things, and it starts with me writing five things on the board, normally, and these five things are important to me in my life. So I'm going to write Ruben, Delta, Mexico, June 2013, and crisps. Step two, I will tell my students that like detectives, uh, they have to find out exactly why these things are important to me by asking questions, but I can only answer with yes or no. So at this point, you might want to elicit open and closed questions with students at different levels. And then step three, students ask these questions. And if they manage to find out exactly what the importance is, they get a point. And if not, it goes to the next person or team. Want to play? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So are we in three separate teams here? Yeah. Against each other. So yeah. who starts? Any of us? Any of you start. Any of us start. About okay. any of them. Yeah. Is Ruben the name of someone you know? Yes. Is Ruben your brother? Yes. Bang. One point to Patrick. <laughs> I mean, not I set you up there. Do I not get half a point because, you know, sort of helped him? No. no. Okay. Dog eat dog. Okay. Okay. Are, are crisps things that you don't like? No. Is Mexico your favourite country? Yes. Yay. <sighs> point to Beth. Are you about to take a delta? Yes, I am. Come on. Point to Patrick. Come on, Sam. No, come on. He already knew that. Um, Stop setting them up for everybody. I Go know. through it. Um, Did you get married in 2000, June 2013? Not married, no. Mm. Should have checked that. Did you graduate in June 2013? Not that young, but thank you very much. No. Did you start? You didn't start teaching in June 2013? No. Did you come back to the UK in 2000, June 2013? Yes. Did you leave the country that you were formerly teaching in in 2013? Yes. Is that a point? Surely that's a point. That's... Yeah, it's a point. Okay. I, I, I came to London in June 2013. Right. Mm -hmm. Are crisps your favourite food? Crisps are my favourite food. Come on. Well done, guys. How many points? Patrick, three points. Beth, two points. Sam, one. But well done for helping everyone. Uh, thanks, Sam. Uh, so now for steps four and five, really, I just repeat this with the students. So with step four, I tell my students that they're each going to write down five things that are important to them on a piece of paper. And I always remind them that the reasons why they're important are a secret because they often forget. 
Um, and then step five, they play with a partner. And um, it works really well because obviously it's very personalised um, and students love that. I think they deserve to know the person who's teaching them and they really like to ask you questions and find out more about you. So they're often really engaged. And I play this game not only when I meet new students, but I kind of do it as often as possible. And it's really good to connect it to a theme or a point that you want to teach. So you could choose only dates, for example, uh, and then you can practice past questions. Or you could choose only people's names and then you get to practice relationship vocabulary. And also, of course, it practices, you know, those tricky question forms. And if you want to make it more challenging, you can insist on uh, perfect forms and refuse to answer until the question is correct. So you can use your board that way to really look at accuracy too. Brilliant. All right. Thanks very much. Now it's time for Word of the Month. Each month we discuss a piece of ELT jargon and how it affects teachers. So Patrick, what can you tell us about meta-language? Uh, I can tell you that meta-language is the words or symbols used for talking about language, Sam. Brilliant, thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, so the, basically the vast majority of teachers already know some meta-language when they first actually start teaching, right? So the words verb, noun, adjective, or examples of meta-language. Um, they're all words that are used to describe other words or groups of words. Um, so anyway, why is meta-language an important part of learning languages? I mean, if you're subscribing to that classic kind of deductive method of teaching grammar, then you would be explaining construction and things, you know, present perfect, for example, with meta-language. Yeah, yeah, basically it's useful for helping, well, teachers, but also students understand language learning resources. So if you're looking at sentence structure and you've got, uh, or pronunciation points in textbooks, knowing the terms for various parts of speech helps them understand what they're learning and categorise things so you know if you're talking about word order, why something's in the wrong place, for example. Um, and knowing meta-language also helps the teacher better understand the materials they're teaching as it's much easier to explain common difficulties that students are likely to face if you know a simplified way to describe the language, right? Um, being able to explain how English works without using your native language helps you think in English and avoid translation. And teachers often ask English students to try and think in English, so this is only possible if you have enough English vocabulary to talk about how the language works. So learning meta-language is easy too. Uh, obviously, there are hundreds of English-only grammar books available online. Um, but the obvious question is, how much meta-language should a teacher know and how much should they expect their learners to know? Interesting. So, Erin, as someone who's about to embark on a delta, presumably you're going to learn lots and lots of meta-language that you don't currently know or haven't at least taught to students. That's true. And I'm currently using Quizlet to test myself right. on this because I'm not very good at remembering it myself. So that puts me in a good position to think about what my students feel like too. But it's undeniably important. And I think that touching on what you said, Patrick, if you label something, it's easier to know it, but it's also easier to know why you don't understand it because you can talk about it and explain what that part is that's hard for you. And then the teacher can work on it with you. And I use meta, basic meta-language all the time in my lessons to work on sentence structure a lot. And I'm quite a tactile person and my lessons are quite, you know, I'm a bits of paper kind of teacher. And just uh, yesterday in a writing class, students were really, really struggling with writing complex sentences. So we put uh, different complex sentences, but broken up onto a little uh, flashcard each and then put them on the table and categorize the words. Uh, reassembled the sentences and you could really see the penny drop with a lot of students because they knew that they could use that word in that space and then they could add on all these other words and it, it just yeah it makes it so much simpler when it's quite overwhelming hmm. yeah I mean I, I 
have done my Delta, as Sam kindly mentioned in the introduction. Um, and yeah, we talk about the view of language from, from different perspectives. And you've got the view from kind of 30,000 feet up, where you can just see the very large labels, which a student mm -hmm. might look at it from that, so knowing verb, noun, or adjective. And then at a teacher point of view, at kind of 10,000 feet, when you see a lot more of the detail around the language, and then you get to kind of just ground level, when you're surrounded by all these like very, very, very specific terminology for very, very, very specific pieces of language, which obviously students don't need to know, really. It's not going to help them to know the difference between a finite and a non-finite verb, for example, but for a teacher teaching it, that definitely does help. Interesting. All right. Thanks very much. Okay, let's move on to this month's interview. This month, Patrick is talking to Sue Kay about teaching cooperatives, the success of the Inside Out series, and how to be a good materials writer. Good morning, Sue. How are you? Morning. Very well, thanks. Excellent. Where, where, where are you speaking to us from today? I'm speaking to you from my office in, um, in Oxford. My office is in my house, so I'm speaking to you from home in Oxford. Lovely. Excellent. Well, let, let's kick things off. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I've been in the ELT world since 1980. That's, uh, that's quite a long time, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, over that time, I've been a teacher, a teacher trainer, a materials writer, and most recently, one third of ELT teacher to writer, which trains people in the skills of writing. Oh, very interesting. Okay. <laughs> and uh, who, who, who are your colleagues there? Who do you work with on that? Oh, the wonderful Karen Spiller and Karen White, two um, top professionals who I've worked with over the years. They were, they were part of the Inside Out team back in the day. So um, we're having a lot of fun working together and providing, I think, a very good service to the industry. Absolutely. So you're basically co coaching people to go from the classroom into a writing career, essentially. Partly, yes, yes. Um, we set up Teacher to Writer because we felt there was um, a need, if you like, for um, that the, there was no training for people to improve their materials writing skills. Right. And between us, the three of us, you know, me from the writing, the actual writing world, Karen uh, Spiller is a publisher, Karen White is um, an editorial manager. We combined our skills and found that we probably had, you know, enough experience to set up the environment for helping people to improve their writing, whether it's for their classroom or for getting into publication. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, so we've got a database that people can write, uh, can, can join. The database is searched by publishers. So that's an avenue, if you like, for people who want to get into publishing. The other thing that we do is produce e-books written by experienced authors, ELT authors, and these e-books unpack the craft of writing, so that in the aspects of writing that can be learnt. Mm. And quite frankly, I wish something like that had been available when I uh, started out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds incredibly yeah. useful. Um, we'll we'll de definitely put a link to that on the, uh, yeah. on the podcast oh, page. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We've already um, had some extracts up on One Stop English, so mm -hmm. um, you'll know where to find us. <laughs> absolutely brilliant. Well, I want to take things back to earlier in your career. And yeah. um, I understand that you worked for a school that was run as a teacher's cooperative for 18 years? That's right. Yes, exactly. So, God, I'll cast my mind back. I actually started teaching in France. That was where I had my first teaching job right. in Lyon. Um, and that's where I did my diploma. So that was, you know, where it all started. But 
after a few years of teaching abroad in France, um, I came back to the UK because I had a very young child and I was finding the long hours that you have to give to a private language school abroad just too much. Mm. So I needed some family support, so I came back to Oxford. And my first job in Oxford was for the Lake School of English. Mm. Now, this was the early 80s. And at the time, the Lake School of English, which is still going strong, by the way, at the time, it was run as a teacher's cooperative. So a very, very interesting setup, actually. I wasn't a founder member. Mm -hmm. The school was actually set up as a cooperative in 1978. Um, it was set up by a group of teachers who had run a very successful summer school in Oxford, and these teachers wanted to make the school more permanent. So they um, explored various ways of doing that and found that by setting the school up, by registering the school as a cooperative, it was a business model that enabled them to continue teaching, but to also run the school. And, and it worked brilliantly. Right, OK. So... I joined the cooperative. I, I taught at the school for a few years, and then the teachers who were running it as a cooperative invited me to join the cooperative. Um, and I loved the idea that um, it was the teachers that run the place. So we taught all week, and then we made all the administrative decisions at weekly meetings every Friday afternoon. So all the people running the school were in the classroom all week, Friday afternoons after classes had finished. We had a meeting where we did everything else. What I loved was that teaching automatically took priority over everything else because yeah. we were all teachers. I mean, we wanted the school to work as a business, obviously, but it was really special not having to answer to a boss who didn't <laughs> have first-hand experience of the classroom, which is so often the case. The other thing was that we, we shared in the success of the school. So the members of the cooperative, if we had a particularly good year, we would get a bonus. Brilliant. So this was a very, you know, a really motivating and incentivizing, if that's a word, uh, way to work. From a sort of business point of view, it was a fabulous way to work. Also, I would say that it was interesting, if I think back over the the way the school ran, roles emerged among the members of the cooperative. So one member was a bit better at doing accounts than the others. So she ended up specializing in the, in the accounts. Another one did um, host family arrangements. In this very special environment, personally, I was able to develop my materials writing. Mm. So I became materials writing person. Mm -hmm. That was my title. Actually, it was thanks to this setup that I was able to uh, get into writing and writing for publication. It was where I wrote the reward resource packs. Mm. So a very special environment in terms of teaching taking priority and everybody having the opportunity to follow their specialization, if you like. Absolutely. So people were basically playing towards their strengths. And um, exactly. I, I, I wonder whether other schools school should be run like that now. I think it was a fabulous way to run a, a school. From the point of view of business, I don't know much about whether, you know, there are many schools that do run that way nowadays. I do know that one of a fascinating school that we were in touch with 
while I was working at the Lake School, a place called Gensana in Valencia, Spain. That's a regular school, a, a primary and secondary school, I believe. That was run on cooperative principles, and I believe it still is. So I know it's possible, and I think that from the point of view of being a teacher working in a school like that, it's really uh, motivating. Yeah, so I'd recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's go, come back to your writing. And you mentioned mm. the, uh, the the reward resource pack that you started to write, and you've also been involved in, you said before, very successful series Inside Out. And that's a staple of most uh, staff rooms around the world. What are your top tips for writing a good course book? <laughs> um, okay, thinking about the reward resource packs, first of all, I think the success of those activities, and goodness knows they're old now, but they're still being used in classrooms, I they believe. Are, they are, they yeah. need a bit of an update, but anyway, uh, they're still being used. I think this, their success is down to the fact that they literally came out of the classroom. So they were the most trialed and tested materials I've ever written because I wrote them in school. Mm. It was my job in the school to write materials for other teachers. So those materials were piloted to death. I got lots of feedback from other teachers. So I think the, the success of the resource packs, I think the t a tip for writing activities is to make sure they work. <laughs> <laughs> so tip. getting lots of piloting, lots of feedback from other teachers was invaluable. Okay, so... Top tip for writing, writing a course book. First of all, I found a wonderful writing partner. Right. You know, I know, you know, that's, there's a lot of luck involved in that. But uh, Vaughan Jones and I have been writing together for 20 years now. And it just works. Yeah. We have different uh, skills that complement one another. And we, we just love working together. Mm-hmm. I put the success of Inside Out largely, maybe not completely, but largely down to the fact that it was an author-led project. Inside Out was Vaughan Jones and my vision. And the publishers were willing to take a risk and give us the chance to write a course that reflected our beliefs about language learning. Yeah. So our central belief about language learning is that we believe in keeping meaning central to everything we write. So... For us, meaningful content means authentic text mm -hmm. with intrinsic interest. We write meaningful tasks that involve a lot of personalization in the classroom. We believe that students are a teacher's best resource in the classroom. And in Inside Out, we provide opportunities for teachers to tap into the students' interests and yeah. opinions. You know, we want to give the students a chance to say things in English that they want to stay in their own language. You know, we don't believe in getting them rehearsing daft things that they would never, uh, <laughs> they would never want to say in their own language. So we're particularly proud, actually, in Inside Out of the anecdote activities, which evolved out of a desire to get students talking about things that they would really want to talk about in their own language. Yep, know them well. No, they're fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so one, one final question um, today. And yeah. on, on the podcast, we, we like to offer advice to our listeners. And so I wanted to ask you, in your career, uh, both in teaching and writing, what's the one most important thing you've learned that you would like to pass on to our listeners? Well, um, I thought about this question a bit. And I came up with two things, really. The first thing is work with people you like. Um, <laughs> you've been spending an awful lot of time together, so why not have a good time? You know, I mentioned Vaughan Jones. Um, for an author, the right writing partner is worth gold. 
or writing partners, because nowadays uh, author teams are much bigger. But getting the right team, I know it's not always up to you. I know that publishers put you together now, but working with people you like is so important. And good things come out of it. it. You know, Inside Out would never have seen the light of day without the brilliant publishers and editors who worked on it, top professionals. We were lucky, yeah. but if you possibly have any say in the matter, work with people you like. The second piece of advice is really to end with what I started with. If you're a teacher and you want to improve your materials writing, or if you want to get into writing for a publisher, take a look at ELT Teacher to Writer, our list of ebooks written by experienced authors. They unpack the craft of writing and, you know, there are aspects of writing, you know, I've, I think that I got into materials writing because I had a flair for it. I really enjoy it. You know, I've always done it. But there are aspects of materials writing that can be learnt. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you want to improve your materials writing, starting with the experience of other writers is not a bad place to start. That's brilliant. That's such fan- fantastic advice. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Excellent. Well, so yeah, thanks again for chatting to us, and best of luck with Teacher to Writer. We'll put the we'll put the link on the site. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Sue. Take care. Bye. Okay. Next up is Teacher Tips. Each month we probe our guest teacher for professional advice. So, Erin, over to you. Um, I think my first tip would be train rather than teach. Um, I think we're facilitators and it's their experience and we're just kind of guiding them through it. Um, So that means really build up learner autonomy um, and show them how to do stuff. So not only are you maximising what's happening in the classroom, but they're able to do that at home too. Okay, agreed. Uh, Tip number two would be understanding the balance between pushing your students and making them feel comfortable. So I think you need to be respectful of students' limits, whether that be kind of academically or linguistically, emotionally, with creativity as well. But I think you need to help them reach a new kind of personal best. I think turn everything you can into a challenge. So for example, if you've got early finishers in a reading uh, task, go up to them, get in there and give them a word building activity on the new vocabulary they've found. The task pushes them, but it's manageable enough for them to get a boost of confidence. So keep challenging them, keep their spirits up and keep the motivation high. Sorry, is this, can I ask a quick question? Sorry, is this something that you would look at in the needs analysis before they come into your class and knowing what their uh, motivation is, then you can ascertain the limits of like where they feel comfortable and how much you can push them? Definitely. I think when you meet students um, when they enrol, uh, luckily in my school at the moment, that's often me testing them. So I get to meet them firsthand. But then I always pass that information on to their teachers and they have a little record so the teachers can read up on that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously motivations change. People think they know what they want. Sometimes they don't. Then it changes. So, yeah, I think keep checking in with that and um, be sensitive to to what they've, they've, they're aiming for. Mm-hmm. And I think for tip three, I would get out of the classroom. So it's something I do a lot in my current job. We have a programme where there's a theme of the week and students from all different levels uh, join in our student lounge. And I run sessions where we basically talk, get to know each other. And that's multi-level. So you've got C1s to LM in there helping each other. And then after a few sessions that week, we'd go out into the world and do something. So for example, if the theme is arts and creativity, 
I'd maybe set up a mini art gallery in the student lounge and get students practicing emotive and descriptive language. Also, a lot of students have never been to an art gallery before, so mm. they're often quite scared. So that kind of builds their confidence a bit. And then we'd take them to the Tate Modern. Yeah. And interestingly, um, I don't know if you do this as well, but something that Hugh Della talked a while uh, talked about a while ago was um, this kind of idea that he would be teaching the the theme of, say, gentrification and then go somewhere where this was, you know, in evidence and kind of elicit language, talk to them about it, discuss things. I think that sounds really great. Um, and I've looked at the work they're doing at that school and it, it's really exciting. And I think I think generally nowadays everything is more tailored. Look at all the apps we have on our phones. We don't mess around with stuff that doesn't fit us. And I don't see why English language learning can't be the same. Right. Mm, I think it's important to get students out and about and get them kind of seeing the city they're studying in if they're studying away from the home country. But obviously you've got to be careful because you wouldn't want to teach them kind of construction vocabulary and go to a building site and they'd have to sign waivers and things like that. So. Well, I mean, if you could, it might be amazing. But um, yeah, it might be a little, quite a lot of paperwork. You do have to think about risk assessments, definitely. But it's worth it like to see students in an environment that isn't theoretical, but mm. it's real, mm. and see them kind of blossom in English is really, it's the best part of my job. And I think that's where I see the most learning happen. And it could, I mean, to be fair, it could almost be as simple as actually taking them to cafes, low-level students and people like that going to cafes and order, literally ordering a drink. Completely. Mm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's helping them out with that. Yeah. Or ice cream parlours, we've done that. That, go down, that goes mm. down very mm. well. Brilliant. All right, thanks very much. And finally, it's Q&A time on the One Stop Podcast, the part of the show in which we try to answer your questions. So, is everyone ready? Ready. Okay, question one. How can the use of authentic materials be optimised for a multi-level teaching approach? Patrick. Yeah, I'd like to uh, suggest using newspapers, which is something I did in class when I used to teach. And you can divide it up into different parts of the newspaper. So with a lower level class, you might teach some basic stuff like just looking at the headlines or kind of the sub-headlines within the articles, just taking some of the kind of simpler language and then with kind of a higher or kind of an intermediate level class you might look at the whole story and then with a higher level class you might look at some of the language surrounding the story and in fact the newspaper like caption for example or things like that and get a discussion going on the topic. That's interesting and actually probably you could use the headlines at higher levels if you wanted to because a lot of them are puns or kind of clever plays on words which you actually really need to be yeah, pretty good at language to understand. I mean I studied journalism way back when and they're talking about the, the parts of the language which are taken out of headlines to make them fit the page so right. you could get students to look at that and try and try and fill in the grammatically correct headline as opposed to what's in the newspaper. Interesting okay any other ideas? I don't use authentic text as often as as I should maybe, but a lot of my students are lower level and they're also quite young. They're usually between 16 and 25 and they often uh, are more engaged when their activity is personalised. So I often kind of create my own texts about me or them. But if I'm going to use authentic text, it will often be newspapers again or magazines. And I really like to use things like Time Out magazine to plan uh, a weekend or plan a trip or something like that. So I, I bring the magazines into the lesson, get them looking through it. And again, going back to confidence, it gives them a little bit more confidence to get a magazine outside the classroom and try and read mm. themselves too. Right, and it's nice that it's real, that it's yeah. something they could really actually plan an actual weekend. For this weekend, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that seems nice because it's a mixture of authenticity and also personalised to their lives. So yeah, great. Agreed. All right. Um, question number two. How important do you think it is to use phonemes in class? Erin. 
I think it's extremely important and I love phonemes. Me too. <laughs> Why do. do you think it's important though? I think there's a huge disconnect between what students hear or think they hear and what they produce and what they think they're producing. So I think anything that can bridge that gap is really positive. And I also think they're really good fun. I think they inject like a different dynamic into the classroom. And because I work in a continuous enrollment school, um, I often kind of teach it as new to students because when they when they come as a new student, they see the kind of more established students using phonemes and they kind of seem like they want to be in that club. And there seems to be a bit of resistance to learning them sometimes. The students probably think, you know, why am I learning this extra thing? It seems like a really hard job to do. But when they when they learn it, when they get it, they seem to have a huge sense of relief, like, oh, it's not me. It's it doesn't look like how it sounds. Mm. Um, it's English and they kind of relax. And I think that's a nice thing to see and, and a good way for them to take control of their listening and speaking skills. Yeah, I think Absolutely. it's like a, like a revelation for them sometimes to yeah. realise there's this way that the things can be broken down to improve their pronunciation, because sometimes they get into, you know, when you have fossilised areas and they think, oh, there's no way I'm ever going to correct this. And then your teacher can show them yeah. by breaking it down into phonemes. Actually, yeah, you can do that just by practising this. And, and yeah, that is a very, very uh, exciting moment for most students, I think. Absolutely. OK, and, and finally, much like an athlete, do you have any pre-class routines that you regularly adhere to? Ideas, Beth? Well, I don't, not being a teacher anymore, but um, has anyone seen that YouTube clip of, I think he's... Um, Barry White. Am- is it Barry? It's Barry. I was going to say he's got a famous name. Yeah, the- Barry White is a teacher in America, in, I think in a state school. And he has a different uh, handshake yeah. for each student in his... And he, he actually got that from me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> not many people know that, but um, yeah. I what did, what 52 did students and yeah, handshakes for every single one of them. Care to demonstrate for the benefit of the listeners? It would lose lose its uh, <laughs> translation with the listening. Okay, so you did handshakes before classes. No, I didn't you do handshakes. Did I, I, I had a coffee before class. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say that too, actually. I, at one point, was teaching seven classes a day and I had a cup of tea in every single one <laughs> just to get me through the day. Erin? I think the best thing to do is just try and imagine it from a student's point of view as best you can. And, of course, they're all really different, so you can't put yourself in all their shoes easily but yeah whatever you're doing how how on a scale of one to ten how terrifying is it going to be for them um how interested are they going to be and how successful do you think um it's going to be as a lesson and then work backwards and that's how i plan great well look that's it for another month if you have any questions suggestions or feedback please email us at one stop podcast at springandnature.com or leave a comment on the one stop page thank you to our in-house panelists patrick and beth thank you very much thanks Thanks to our guest teacher, Erin Vickerman. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And until next month, this is the One Stop English Podcast. <laughs>